Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with the head of the American College of Preventive Medicine about the pandemic. Then I'll be joined by George Hobor, Senior Program Officer with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. He'll talk about an interactive website that provides local information about health outcomes covering many diseases and conditions. In about 20 minutes, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend has information about the vaccine and teens. Andrew Kenzie talks with Columbus Mayor Andrew Genther about violence and the search for a new police chief. And there's information about a summer tutoring program for school kids. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with Rob Sexton, Legislative Affairs Director of the Buckeye Firearms Association. He'll talk about Ohio's expanded Stand Your Ground law that recently went into effect. First up on Columbus Perspective, joining me on the phone, Dr. Stephanie Zaza. She's president of the American College of Preventive Medicine, also a former longtime medical officer for the CDC, and she's originally from Northeast Ohio. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. I was looking over your bio, and uh, you went to Youngstown State and uh, other education in Northeast Ohio? That's right. I went to the, originally it was called the Neo-UCOM program. It's now called Neomed. So I did my undergraduate at Youngstown State, my medical degree at Neomed. And also a public health degree from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, which plays a big role, I think, in what we're going to talk about. Yes, it does. And what we are going to talk about is uh, the kind of aftermath, (laughs) hopefully it's uh, heading toward the aftermath of this pandemic. And before we go any farther into that, what is your take on where we're at right now? Are you confident that we are going to pull away from this thing? You know, I think, yes, I I am confident. We have the... The lead up to where we are today was about figuring out how to track this disease, how to treat the disease, and how to prevent it. The ultimate prevention technology that we have is vaccine, which we now have. We'll be continuing to manufacture vaccine and get it out to people, make sure we have good access points. And um, we've been doing a, a pretty good job, I think, of um, creating the demand for it. So, you know, convincing people to want to get it. Um, vaccines are tricky that way. And, you know, some people are skeptical and they, they want, they have a lot of questions and they want to know more before they get the, get the vaccine. But I think we have to keep pressing on that in order to emerge out of this situation and back to some semblance of the way we like to organize ourselves as a society. We, you know, we like to travel, we like to visit, we like to have commerce around the country and then around the world. And to get back to that, we do need to achieve pretty high levels of, of vaccination rates, not just here, but around the world. It's been a remarkable journey when you consider that early last year, you know, the, the first rumblings about this thing, it was hard for just general people to understand how serious this might be to everything stopping in its tracks in March. And now here we are a year later with what seems to be almost a miraculous availability of rolling out this vaccine on a worldwide scale. You know, I think there's a couple of really interesting points embedded in in what you just said. Part of shutting things down was to give us time to get to this place where we have a a pretty deep understanding of how to prevent infection, either by preventing contact with folks um, who are sick or getting a vaccine and, and sort of um, improving your own immunity so that if you are in contact with somebody who's sick, you, you are protected. Um, we came a long way for a couple of reasons really quickly. 
for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, there are a lot of public health techniques that we were able to roll out and put in place because we've been studying them and, and understanding them for a long time. Um, and I would say the development of the vaccine so quickly is, um, it's remarkable, but it is based on a pretty um, amazing platforms that had been developed by through basic research investments over a period of over 20 years. So that vaccine didn't come out of nowhere. It came from the, sort of the foresight of people who knew that these types of viruses, um, there was this potential for this type of technology that we were able to take advantage of and move very quickly. So it is extraordinary. But I think we also need to be thinking, and as we look to the future, how do we build more of that kind of infrastructure in the public health arena, more of those platforms to allow us to jump quickly when we find that there's uh, a new threat out there that we can that we can take care of quickly. And through all of this, especially with the advent of social media and just uh, general more awareness of people, the trust in public health has been on trial over the last year. Has that surprised you? Yes and, and no. I think the, um, you know, public health has its ways of doing things and it often operates very quietly. I think what happened, and, and people trust that it's kind of operating because when we're successful in prevention, nothing happens. So it's often very hard to kind of brag about the successes in public health. Once this kind of blew out into um, a very political sphere. I think all of the, the ways that public health works as science changes, the message changes, that became very confusing for people. And I think it became, um, it just became very challenging to operate in this environment we have today. Um, social media has you know, social media can be a force for good, and it can really move information quickly. But it can also move misinformation really quickly, and that's something that public health um, departments and public health officials have had to learn how to cope with. It's been a, a new challenge. Talking with Dr. Stephanie Zaza, Northeast Ohio native and president of the American College of Preventive Medicine. Well, I guess sooner or later, another one may come down the pike, maybe in our lifetime, maybe not. Will we be ready for it, and will it be handled differently, do you think? I think that um, we we are ready. We're learning, obviously, a lot of lessons from, from this um, experience, and we will continue to learn lessons and, and apply that learning to improving systems. One thing that sort of cycles, um, it's part of the political cycle is um, a focus on health diplomacy around the world and making sure that we have good relationships and, and are able to, when either we discover a new threat here in the United States or if another country discovers it, that we're able to communicate about that in ways that don't generate reprisals or recriminations, but instead generate a leap to action, a leap to positive action to, to um, try to ward off the situation and, and contain it before it can, um, moves into community spread. That can be very difficult to do, but it is possible to, to do that and to, and to build those relationships and those systems when we're not in the middle of a, of a global crisis. So, so we do have some work to do there, and I think that um, 
there's a, a true effort to, to continue to build and repair the relationships um, around the world that, that we need to do to, to prevent the next pandemic. It will also depend on us in part as individuals. One way we can help um, make ourselves more resilient, both as individuals and communities, is to pay attention to our own health. You know, we've seen in this outbreak, um, this pandemic, that the people who were most vulnerable to very severe illness or death are people with underlying chronic diseases. And and the ways that we can really try to prevent those diseases are, are well known. So the more we can do that um, and, and create that resilience through prevention, the healthier we'll be, the more resilient we'll be. So, so everybody has a role to play in preventing the next pandemic. When this uh, first began to hit, and even now, today, with, you know, some of the so-called long haulers that are still having symptoms even a year after they have had the virus, it seems to to be a very mysterious sort of illness still. But do you think that enough has been learned about it that maybe the next time that some sort of a different strain hits, that maybe we will be farther along the learning curve on what's going to happen? Well, absolutely. You know, this has been an extraordinary year of scientific learning. When you think about what we knew about this virus um, 18 months ago, which was nothing, and what we know about it today, which is a considerable amount, we will, of course, continue to learn more about it and and learn more about these long-haul symptoms and um, people who are experiencing a chronic version of of this illness. Um, We'll continue to learn more about that, and that will, to some extent, that learning will be applicable to other types of coronaviruses, other strains of coronaviruses, um, but may or may not apply to other virus types. Uh, There's a very specific family of viruses. So, you know, again, it's uh, what we've learned about how to do this research will certainly apply. So I think that, that we will learn quite a lot of lessons from this experience that will apply to any future pandemic threat. Is there any concern in the medical world that we don't hear much about that there could be sort of a scarlet fever type thing with this where younger people who get COVID today might see the results of it uh, negatively in 20 years or whatever? You know, that's that's a bit outside of my knowledge base and purview. I would, I would refer you to somebody who's studying the, the long-term clinical and immunological effects. You know, we are seeing some kinds of, of um, unusual immune constellation of symptoms in, in children that I think are concerning, but but regarding the long-term effects, I, I think I'd have to refer you to somebody who studies immunology and um, long-term effects of a disease like this. Fair enough. Talking with Dr. Stephanie Zaza, president of the American College of Preventive Medicine. Anything else you'd like to add? Well, you know, one of the things I mentioned this briefly is this idea of prevention and helping ourselves to be more resilient. This is something that we care a lot about as preventive medicine physicians. So just say if, if folks are interested in learning more about preventive medicine, what it means from a, an individual perspective or even from a public health perspective, uh, they can find more information on our website, which is the acpm.org, just acpm.org, American College of Preventive Medicine, acpm.org. 
Okay. Dr. Stephanie Zaza, again, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me on. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. You've been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. You have to carefully monitor your health for the rest of your life. And you have an increased risk of developing cardiovascular disease. Cut. Take two. Action. You've been diagnosed with a new purpose. To fight for the amazing life you made for yourself. To look that risk of heart disease square in the face and say, no, not me. You've been given a new opportunity to live. Get started at nodiabetesbyheart.org. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is George Hober, who is with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. He's Senior Program Officer. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for talking to us. We're going to talk about a nationwide map that deals with all kinds of health issues that people can zoom into right down to beyond the county level, and it's called Places. Tell us about it. I guarantee just about anybody that looks at this will be fascinated because, uh, you know, it's it's some of the usual categories that one would expect, like obesity and high blood pressure. But there's also arthritis, teeth loss, people who get less than seven hours of sleep. I mean, there, there's a wide array of categories here. Yeah, I believe there, there are 27 different measures, and, and they're... Uh categorized into those three categories I, I said at the top, health outcomes, which those are really disease measures and healthy behaviors, uh, all the activities you do or don't do, and, and yeah, those typical prevention measures, whether it be insurance or, uh, like I said, annual checkups. So it's neat in that it's a pretty comprehensive tool. It's really interesting because when you just look at the nation as a whole and, and look at these colors blend in, what becomes striking is so many negative outcomes for an area that looks like it starts just south of Pittsburgh and runs through West Virginia and southeast Ohio, through Kentucky and Tennessee, down to Arkansas, Louisiana, down in that area. It's just like a dark wave of these unhealthy outcomes that show up in a lot of these maps. Yeah, there's a lot of variation across the state on different measures, but 
as we know from past research and past data that uh, the south part, the southern part of the country does perform worse on particular health measures, particularly obesity. It's different if you look out west where you see uh, more unhealthy behaviors like binge drinking. Um, but yeah, there's, there's great variation. It's interesting to explore. There's a lot of variation even within your state of Ohio. Yeah, that's the neat thing about it is that if you see a trend like that nationwide, you can zoom in to uh, just a, a section of a state maybe and see the same type of thing, and that's where it can really become beneficial and valuable to public health officials in a state. Right, exactly. So I, I think if we, for example, if you look at your state of Ohio and you look at something like heart disease, you'll see that, one, there's great variation across the state. So Columbus is at 5.6% um, prevalence, and that's below the national average, which is around 7 and. You know, Cincinnati will fall at about the average, and Cleveland will be higher at 9%. But like I said, what the innovation is with uh, places is that you could look at that in even more detail. So if you want to compare Cleveland to Columbus and see where are the places that are really driving the negative trends around heart disease, what you see in Columbus is this interesting pattern where to the northwest of the city, you really don't have high incidences, but they're scattered little pockets around the um, west, the south, and also the east. But Cleveland is a totally different geography where uh, outside of this small urban core, uh, rates are universally high. And like you said, it, it gives public health officials uh, a tool where they could uh, better target their interventions, uh, education around heart disease, and outreach to make sure that they improve those, uh, those statistics. Um, so it, it is a tool that uncovers that variation at a really detailed level. And like I said, you could even move up towards the state. So uh, we're really pleased that you could explore these different levels of variation. Talking with George Hober, he's a senior program officer for the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. How uh, are all of these statistics compiled and where, where are they obtained? Uh, they are obtained through uh, the CDC does do a survey called the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance uh, Survey, and uh, that is collected every three years, so there's a lag on the data but that's typical with all governmental sources, and that's the source of these data, and it's going to be updated regularly. It's going to be interesting in a few years from now to see what the pandemic does to skew these numbers, because obviously a lot of people are suffering from depression, mental health issues perhaps, and of course we've had just a higher mortality rate in general because of the pandemic. Yes, that will be interesting, and uh, I should be clear in saying that places doesn't provide specific measures on COVID outcomes, such as confirmed cases or testing, uh, but it does look at things, if you wanted to look at COVID right now and think about how, how, how can we tackle this challenge, the places does provide interesting information on underlying conditions such as cardiovascular disease and obesity. These are the things that we know complicates COVID. So again, with that ability to drill down and really find you know, what are your really vulnerable areas when it comes to cardiovascular disease or obesity, you're, you're able to do that. And that could help public health leaders and community leaders communicate the need for safety and following guidelines to really specific areas. So you could use this to, to think about the underlying conditions and vulnerability now for COVID. And like you said, you could look at measures in the future, like those mental health ones uh, to see, hey, was there uh, an overlap with COVID data that uh, you could make an association. And, you know, bringing in other data, you could even uh, look 
those data available locally. You could merge them with some of these health data and that are available through places, and you could get a really good idea of where vulnerability and risk concentrates at a really fine local level. It's fascinating stuff, a really easy map to navigate as well. Uh, George, if folks want to check this out online, how do they find it? Sure, you could go to, uh, we encourage you to check it out online. It's at places, at cdc.gov. If you go to the website, it's cdc.gov backslash places. Um, Please explore it. It's a very interesting tool. And if you want information on some of the actions that you could take uh, in response to the trend you see in data, you could also go to rwjf.org backslash data um, and access some of that information. Okay, George Hober again. He's the Senior Program Officer for the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Thanks so much for the information. Thanks for having me. Meet Ed, movie buff, animal lover, safe driver. Five years of driving an ambulance teaches you a thing or two. If people knew what I know, lives could be saved. When I see a car trying to rush past the turning bus, I get concerned. You see, when big vehicles turn right, they have to swing wide to make the turn. And that's a lesson you don't want to learn the hard way. When trucks and buses turn, let's you and I wait. It's It's our roads. It's It's our safety. Visit www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Coming up in about 20 minutes on Columbus Perspective, I'll talk with someone from the Buckeye Firearms Association about Ohio's new Stand Your Ground law. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Here's Tracy. Thank you so much for joining us this morning for Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. We know you probably have questions about what's going on with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, and that's why we went straight to members of our 10TV team of experts for answers. I asked Dr. Joe Gastaldo with Ohio Health, people who got that J&J vaccine already get the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine as well. You have had the J&J vaccine. The immune response from that is a great immune response, and you are well protected uh, from this contagious virus. So the recommendation, if you've had J&J, is not to seek the mRNA vaccines. You are fully vaccinated with the J&J vaccine two weeks after you received it. Right now, more businesses are opening vaccination clinics at their workplaces. That's because Ohio vaccination providers are now allowed to designate 25% of their stock for businesses. Worthington Industries received its first shipment of doses, started hosting drive-through vaccination clinics. Having the vaccine here, it just makes it so much safer for me and my family. Worthington Industries says because they have an on-site medical center and pharmacy, they applied and were approved to administer the vaccine. Like 10TV, Worthington Industries is part of the Stop the Spread Coalition aimed at stopping COVID-19. Franklin County is now the only county in the state at level four on the state COVID advisory system. That means there is severe exposure to COVID-19. Despite that, Governor DeWine says he is not calling for any restrictions. He says, unlike in the past when our case count was much higher, this time we have the vaccine, which has allowed schools and businesses to stay open. DeWine says in Franklin County, there are several reasons cases are going up. A lot of people in Franklin County are now vaccinated. A lot of people aren't going to spread it. A lot of people aren't going to get it. We're making it harder and harder for this variant to to multiply. But at the same time, it's so powerful that it is multiplying. If you have a child who's 16 or over, time to get the child vaccinated. 
So far, more than 4 million Ohioans have been vaccinated. On the same day, Columbus Health leaders and Mayor Ginther held a news conference. Mayor Ginther stressed this is an alert. This does not mean a stay-at-home advisory. Health professionals are not recommending schools go virtual. The county now meets the health indicators for purple, but health officials say case numbers and other indicators are nowhere near where they were at the pandemic's peak. They believe the rise in cases could have to do with spring break travel, as well as COVID fatigue. They're saying going back to purple is a warning to get back to the basics. It should be a wake-up call for people that we all have to do better. We have to continue to wear our masks, but most importantly, we need people to get vaccinated. We need our community, anyone who's 16 years of age and older, to get vaccinated so we can start to see a decrease in these cases sooner rather than later. Doctors in Columbus are also encouraging eligible teens to get the vaccine. Angela Reigert is sharing the story of one Ohio teen who made that decision. Here's her why. Why did you want to get the vaccine? So we could have a track season and my little brother has asthma and I didn't want to risk him getting sick. For Katie Wyskowski, her why is simple. She's 16, a sophomore, an athlete. When her track season was put on pause due to COVID-19, that hurt. It was like pretty much your dreams being crushed at the moment. Because, well, you want to do something and then it just gets taken away from you. And she doesn't want that to happen again. So she rolled up her sleeve to do her part, giving her mom peace of mind. We had discussed that with her being a traveling athlete and going to multiple schools, multiple competitions, I thought it might be a smart idea considering she's running, you know, and doing competition without a mask. While cases of COVID-19 are going up in Ohio, kids aren't ending up in the hospital too often. Dr. Rustin Morse from Nationwide Children's Hospital. Our volumes have been low, have been stable, and children generally do quite well if they get COVID. But that doesn't mean the pandemic isn't impacting them. Children being out of school, out of sports, not having social contact for almost a year is devastating. We need to keep the schools open. It's imperative. It's safe. It's the right thing to do. So he's asking parents to talk to their kids about getting their shot. Right now, it's approved for those 16 and older, with Pfizer trying to get FDA approval for children as young as 12. There's almost no reason for a healthy 16-year-old child not to get vaccinated to help protect him, herself, their family, and the community. Katie says a few of her friends got their vaccine, too. That's encouraging to her. So we're getting closer. That's cool. What, what would you say to someone your age, you know, if they're trying to make that, that decision? I would say you want to get it because you don't want to risk getting other people sick. It's that simple. Reporting in Columbus, Angela Rigard, 10TV News. And, of course, those under 18 need the okay from a parent to get the shot. The pandemic brought the issue of racial disparity to the forefront. We talked one-on-one -on -one with Mayor Ginther about the plan he has to fix the problem. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. By the way, this segment was recorded prior to this week's shooting by police of a 16-year-old girl in Columbus. The recent deaths of black people during encounters with law enforcement sparked protests here in Columbus. Some protesters briefly got into police headquarters downtown before trading pepper spray with officers. 
Protesters say they were trying to sit in at the headquarters, but police shared body camera footage they say shows 20-year-old Hunter Matten hitting a sergeant with a bat. Matten is now charged with aggravated burglary. Mayor Andrew Ginther addressed the protests at his State of the City address. He says he hears those protesters loud and clear, but the mayor also says he hears the calls to stop the violence in our city. 10TV's Andrew Kinsey talked one-on-one -on -one with Mayor Ginther after the address. They talked about all of that, plus the impact of the pandemic on Columbus. We have been through quite a year, COVID-19. Sure. Uh, talk about the surge, the response, and the rebound. You know, as you know, uh, we made national and international news, uh, standing with the governor before the Arnold. That was one of the first big decisions um, that we uh, had to make during this pandemic was around the Arnold. And a lot of folks couldn't understand why we were making that decision at that point. Many folks were just learning uh, about COVID-19 and what it was. Uh, and clearly that was the right decision. And we've been working very closely with the governor, the big city mayors uh, and, and the governor closely together to navigate uh, what has been an unprecedented time. And I believe that uh, we are in much better uh, place from a public health standpoint, from a uh, economic standpoint, um, because we've made tough decisions. You talked about the, the pandemic and it uncovered some disparities here in our community. What are some of those? Well, I think clearly uh, based on what we're seeing with respect to, to race, uh, you know, COVID-19, you know, uh, didn't create the disparities, but I think they have served as an accelerant uh, for those disparities uh, and the divide in, in our community. We know that COVID-19 disproportionately negatively impacted our black and brown neighbors, not just here, but around the country. And so, you know, what that lays, I think, bare for all of us is the disparities and inequities with respect to health, you know, those drivers of, you know, the things that make our community so special, education, health, income, uh, transportation, access to uh, high quality early childhood education. And so what I think COVID has done is laid bare and magnified those disparities. But it also has kind of, is created a sense of urgency for us to move on this equity agenda, to make sure that everyone in this community uh, is able to share in Columbus's success. And that's why I'm so optimistic about our future. With the city last year having 170 homicides, we are already at 60 this year. You said we couldn't simply police our way out of the spike of homicides in this city. Uh, comprehensive neighborhood safety strategies, mm -hmm. being involved, everyone having a role to play, plays a role in this. With the record homicides, mm -hmm. does that approach appear to be working? And is this the solution or is it going to take more? Well, I think it's going to take more. And what we talked about here tonight and what we've been working on, we had a homicide record in 2017. We came together as a community, put together that comprehensive neighborhood safety strategy. We brought homicides and violent crime down in 2018 and 2019, only to have this spike in 2020 that, quite honestly, cities across the country have been dealing with. And it has definitely impacted uh, by COVID and the economic insecurity, uh, the global health pandemic, and all of its impact on housing and food insecurity and those 
those types of things. We know that's feeding into it because there are mid-sized cities around the country who have seen dramatic spikes in violence. But what we're focused on is the violence here in our city, in our community. And that's why, you know, we're dramatically ramping up our reroute program, not just investing in law enforcement, but investing in public health. You know, the, you know, the coalition there, the CARE Coalition, as well as the APPS program that's based in recreation and parks with interventionists that help young people who may be headed down the wrong path, helping to get them on the right track and away from uh, this very dangerous behavior that they've uh, engaged in. We're also working with the judges, the juvenile court judges and the judges in our court system, law enforcement, even the suburban community. Tonight we announced a half a million dollar commitment to diversion programs to help young people uh, get back on the path of, you know, summer youth employment, after school programming, you know, educational enrichment opportunities so that they can build a future for themselves and their families. And we know there's a search underway for a new police chief. Where does that stand and what particularly are you looking for in a leader of that department considering we are now at 60 homicides in our state? Well, clearly we need a change agent, you know, someone that's going to help us change the culture uh, within the division of police. That's why I'm looking for an external candidate. It's the first time in the city's history that we'll have an external candidate come in and lead the division of police. So I'm talking to mayors, police chiefs, uh, law enforcement experts from around the country and encouraging the best and the brightest to apply and be part of this process. Uh, I think we're going to have some really strong candidates, and I think we've also made some changes that's going to be make it more attractive to folks from the outside, creating the position of assistant chief so that this new uh, leader will be able to bring a team with them uh, to help them change that culture uh, within the division of police. Uh, I envision a, a pretty expedited process, but uh, an opportunity probably virtually to keep everybody safe. Uh, a way for the community to meet some of the finalists and uh, be able to ask them some questions and interact with them before we make a decision, hopefully in the month of May. Speaking of, you have been uh, vocal in calling for federal and state government to enact some common sense gun laws on mm -hmm. recently. Uh, the state of Ohio implementing the stand your ground law. Do you feel that's counterproductive? Maybe the uh, wrong move to make? Absolutely. It's dead wrong. It's terrible public policy. Uh, and we know that there are communities around the country, and every town has all the data on this. Every state where there has been this type of standard ground legislation put in place, homicides and violence go up. And we know that it disproportionately will impact our black and brown neighbors. You know, when in essence you put this standard ground legislation, uh, you're, you're in essence telling folks they no longer have to justify retreat. They can shoot first and ask questions later. Uh, and that is the absolute wrong approach. And we know, you know, when there was the shooting in Dayton just a couple of years uh, ago, and the people of Dayton and the people of Ohio were saying, do something, this is not what they were talking about. They were talking about universal background checks, red flag laws, and making sure that we're keeping firearms out of the hands of the wrong people. You can listen to all of Andrew's interview with Mayor Genther at 10TV.com or you can download the 10TV app. The man accused of vandalizing the state house is facing charges. Video from the Ohio State Highway Patrol shows a man setting off a fire extinguisher inside the building. Windows were left busted, and crews had to clean up all of that damage. When police got there, they found 36-year-old Jeremy Ibanez outside. They say he called 911 to get help after taking illegal drugs. Ibanez has been charged with vandalism. Up next, a way to help students with learning disabilities get some extra help 
for free. We had, it really had. I'm just, we're just so grateful. Uh, it, 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 sorry, I'm muffling my words, but I'm just so happy. And I'm trying not to cry too. Wow, the organization that has parents so happy, they're shedding tears. How do you know if you or a loved one is at risk of problem gambling? By knowing the signs, such as borrowing money, hiding unpaid debts, bragging about wins, or just plain irritability. Sound familiar? Get Set Before You Bet is Ohio's initiative to help keep gambling safe and responsible for everyone. How does it work? Just visit BeforeYouBet.org to learn more and take the responsible gambling quiz. Together, we can keep gambling safe and responsible in Ohio. This message brought to you by Ohio for Responsible Gambling. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Coming up in about six minutes, I'll talk with someone from the Buckeye Firearms Association about Ohio's new Stand Your Ground law. Now, back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. Congresswoman Joyce Beatty, who represents the 3rd District, made some headlines for an Oval Office meeting. Beatty, who serves as chair of the Congressional Black Caucus and a small group from that caucus, met with President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris. They talked about the administration's first 100 days as well as their own, looking to find some common ground on issues including social justice, the pandemic and affordable housing. Now, let's talk about today's note of promise. Parents are giving the program Learning Aid Ohio rave reviews. It's a way to help students with learning disabilities get some extra help that's free. And now that program is continuing through the summer. 10TV's Brittany Bailey talked with families about the positive impact. We're just so grateful. Uh, Sorry, I'm muffling my words, but I'm just so happy. And I'm trying not to cry, too. That's what happens when a mother is simply overwhelmed with joy and pride for her son. Nine-year-old Philip Taylor has blossomed with the help of his tutor through the Learning Aid Ohio program. I say the past six months, everything has changed. He's more happier because he's starting to like, he's getting it. He's getting his math. He's getting the reading. He's comprehending it. We're excited to talk and and announce this summer opportunity in hopes that families who maybe just hadn't heard of this program yet can can get in to participate for the summer. And here is how that program works. Families with students on an individualized education program or Section 504 plan and experiencing financial hardship can apply for a $2,000 grant. That covers a personal tutor or aid for the student throughout the summer. It's evident that the ripples and impacts of children being really displaced out of their typical school rhythm for as long as it's gone on, um, those ripples are going to last a long time. This helped me a lot with my reading. And I, if I have really hard homework, I can, I can just wait until I have my tour because she helps me really a lot. 11-year-old Nick and his family were so grateful for the help, they sent a thank you card. And as a family, we are very grateful because we are able to get that extra help that as parents, it's hard for us to do at home. His self-confidence has improved. Uh, His reading tests have skyrocketed. His grades are outstanding. And now that help won't take a break during summer break. Brittany Bailey, 10TV News. The Down Syndrome Association of Central Ohio started this program to serve its families, but then it expanded statewide to serve children with all sorts of disabilities. So far, more than 1,000 students have been helped. You can find out more about applying for the summer program by visiting 
10tv.com. That's really great. Thank you so much for being with us today. Remember, if it affects you, your family, and Ohio, we're here to make sure those accountable face the state. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Before I was adopted, I felt like nobody wanted me. I felt like my life was already over. At a certain age, they don't want you. You're troubled and stuff. Even if I wanted to be adopted, who would adopt a 17-year-old? Inside, I knew, like, I'm not a troubled kid. I know what I'm in for, why I'm here. My biggest fear was that I would age out and not know how to be sufficient on my own. I had nightmares every single day at my birth mom's house. It was just really scary for me living there. I was scared. I was lost, and I felt hopeless. I felt like, don't I deserve to feel happy and loved? I just wish I'd gotten adopted sooner. Unfortunately, the number of children waiting to be adopted from foster care is on the rise. The Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption is the only public nonprofit charity in the U.S. focused exclusively on foster care adoption. You can help. Go to DaveThomasFoundation.org to learn more. Neil Armstrong waited six hours and 39 minutes to step onto the surface of the moon. Jackie Robinson waited 20 months to play his first game with the Brooklyn Dodgers. And even DiCaprio had to wait 22 years to win an Oscar. You can wait until your destination. Don't text and drive. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. There's a place to share the joy of your team winning it all and a place to share a laugh about skiing and taking a fall. There's a place to share photos of pets or singing in the choir or the time you ate a pepper and your mouth was on fire. But we could all be better at sharing how we're feeling inside. 76% of employees have struggled with at least one issue that affected their mental health. When you share, you're not alone. Ask about your company's emotional health benefits. Visit heart.org slash sharing. Brought to you by the American Heart Association. When I grow up, I want to be a doctor because that's a really important job. I would help kids get better and make everything super fun. I'd have a cool waiting room with games, toys, and a huge TV. If your child is sick over and over again, it could be PI, a serious defect of the immune system. Early testing gives children a chance to dream. And I'll give every kid a cherry lollipop because that's the best flavor. Jeffrey Modell Foundation, helping children reach for their dreams. Visit info4pi.org. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. This segment originally aired on January 10th on Columbus Perspective, shortly after Governor Mike DeWine signed legislation expanding Ohio's Stand Your Ground law, which now has recently gone into effect. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Rob Sexton, Legislative Affairs Director of the Buckeye Firearms Association. How are you doing? I'm good, Dave. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us uh, briefly what the Buckeye Firearms Association is. Well, Buckeye Firearms Association is Ohio's premier defender of the Second Amendment. Uh, we work in the legislature, in the courts, uh, and have members all across the state. And our, our primary mission is the defense of gun rights in Ohio. 
And we're going to talk about legislation that puts Ohio in with the other states that have stand-your-ground laws. What does that mean? Well, in, in current law, Dave, you know, if someone attacks you in your own home, you've got a right to defend yourself. But when you are outside the home, uh, when you're being attacked or a family member is being attacked and you have a, a genuine fear for your life, the law has this odd phrase in there that you have a duty, an obligation to seek avenues of retreat, to look for a place to hide or to run away. And, and, and that is an unjust burden to put on someone who's actually a victim of crime. So what this does is it removes that duty to retreat in all circumstances. So not just in your home, but anywhere you go, as long as you're, you're somewhere you have a legal right to be. So I'm trying to think of in terms of, uh, you know, where it might happen outside the home. If somebody is walking in a city down the street and gets the feeling somebody is kind of stalking them or following them, they might be able to turn to their gun as protection sooner than they would without this law? I don't think it's a matter of sooner, and it's not a matter of, you know, you feel like someone's following you. It is a, a genuine fear for your life. So let's say... You're being, you know, you're being attacked at the ATM machine or you're being accosted in the parking lot at the mall uh, or something along those lines. So uh, in, in that situation, you, you would no longer have an obligation to, to, to run or to find a hiding place before you're allowed to defend yourself. And I think what everyone needs to consider is this is split-second stuff. You know, you're under duress. You're under attack. And to have a law that says, well, gee, while you're busy being attacked, we'd like you to consider your retreat options. It's not just unjust, but it's also not realistic to the situation. But the scenarios that you're pointing out make it almost sound more like uh, the person with the gun who's being attacked is in danger of having the gun taken away from them. Um, and yet there's no spacing that's part of this law. No, I don't, I don't believe it's a matter of having your gun taken away from you. I think it's a matter of... In, in, in the current situation, the very first thing law enforcement's going to examine is whether or not you took advantage of a potential avenue of retreat. And, and we're saying well, that's ridiculous. If you're being attacked, especially if you've got family members with you, loved ones with you, your first obligation is to protect yourself and your family. And that's where uh, removal of this added step uh, makes so much sense. You know, your attacker doesn't have the same hurdle to clear uh, before they do what they're going to do. And so this very same idea that you that you have a right to in your own home, you now would have anywhere. So does the legislation say then in the event you are being attacked, you can stand your ground? Well, what it does, you see, in current law, uh, it spells out the idea of when you have a duty to retreat and when you don't have a duty to retreat. And this just simply removes that item. It doesn't change one bit the standards of self-defense. So in other words, the very same attributes that you have to be where you're legally allowed to be, that you have to be in a genuine life-threatening situation. Uh, you, you cannot be connected with some sort of connecting crime. So in other words, a person can't try to rob someone and then you know, shoot the person they're robbing and claim they felt threatened all of a sudden. It's very clearly aimed at someone who is a victim. Talking with Rob Sexton, Legislative Affairs Director of the Buckeye Firearms Association, the belief that someone's life is in danger, is that further fleshed out in some sort of a 
a description of what that means? Uh, well, it, it already exists in current law in, you know, in your home. So it's the very same type of, uh, of legal process. We didn't monkey with that. We didn't change that with this bill. It's, it's identical in those very same standards, which have been, boy, I don't know, litigated for more than 150 years in Ohio law, remain the same. So we didn't lower the bar uh, in, in which you're allowed to defend yourself. Uh, we just simply removed the obligation that you, you have to look for opportunity to run. When the governor signed the bill, uh, House Minority Leader Amelia Sykes of Akron put out a statement that's uh, just, it's just one uh, paragraph. Let me read it to you real quick. Quote, only cowards would pass and sign a bill that's been proven to disproportionately harm black people. Only cowards would support a bill that allows people to shoot first and ask questions later. The blood of the lives lost from the signing and passage of this bill rest solely on those who supported it. What's your reaction to that? Well, it's it's completely false, and, and also it's hyperbole into a debate that uh, uh, that is really unfortunate. I don't believe that this type of law is disproportionate on anyone except for someone who is attacking someone. Uh, and I, I really hate to see that kind of language injected into the debate. Do you think this has the potential to reduce gun violence? Does it ever show to do that, or would that just be a, a, a sidebar of this that, that doesn't really apply? You know, lots of times when opponents of this bill talk about it, they bring up, you know, how is this going to impact gun crime? And the truth is, gun activity by criminals is not connected to my right of self-defense. So I, I, I can't tell you that I think, you know, there's going to be less gun crime, and criminals are going to do what criminals do. On the other hand, victims of crime now have at least an ability to defend themselves without being worried that they're going to have to get a lawyer and take a second mortgage out on their house to explain why they defended themselves, uh, you know, and didn't run or try to hide. So I, I don't think it's connected with uh, the epidemic of gun violence that we see in some of our cities. I think it's more connected with just protecting people. I was reading some comments, uh, you know, at the bottom of newspaper articles. Sometimes those are, are far more, at least enjoyable, than the, <laughs> than the newspaper articles themselves. Uh, one person said that they believed that people who carry concealed weapons, especially outside of their homes, uh, you know, in cities or wherever, in their opinion, tended to be either more aggressive or paranoid people who might be more likely to react in an aggressive way than somebody who doesn't carry a gun might, and therefore they, they're the wrong person to be giving this sort of law to to give them a little more leeway. Well, that's, that's not a factual statement by any means. You know, people who are opponents of gun rights, we go back, you know, back when the first concealed carry law was passed, Governor Taft was governor, and people like, uh, people like the person who made that comment were saying, oh, there's going to be violence in the streets and the OK Corral, and we haven't found that to be the case. In fact, we found concealed license holders to be entirely responsible, just like we knew they would be. And over the years, there have been expansions to the places that you're allowed to carry. You know, the first law was very cautious and had a lot of unnecessary restrictions to it, and that's been gradually opened over the years. But every time that there was another opening, there'd be the same old worn-out diatribe, you know, that it's the legal gun owner that we have to fear. And the truth is, stats have just never proven that out. People who own firearms 
are law-abiding people. They respect the law. Uh, I myself am a concealed handgun license uh, holder. I carry quite a bit. Uh, I can tell you this firsthand. The last thing I would ever want to do is to use that firearm. Uh, so, so I just I think the comment is just misplaced and obviously just someone who's just not familiar with people like me that carry firearms. I also remember, though, back during the debates in the early days of this, when the gun rights advocates would say there's never been an, an example of somebody with a concealed carry permit uh, accidentally killing somebody, or I don't remember exactly what the claim was, but it was something that was that seemed awfully hard to believe. And, and even since then, we've had a gun instructor in an Ohio instructor course who's accidentally shot somebody. Well, I mean, I think unfortunate accidents happen even, you know, even far beyond, you know, firearms. I mean, like I'm a hunter, for example, and accidents in hunting are extremely rare, but they do happen, uh, and they're unfortunate. But I think the overwhelming evidence, not just in Ohio, but across the entire United States, is the concealed handgun license uh, holders are extremely good actors. They're 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 good people. They're they behave legally and. and you know, the rest of society has nothing to fear. Uh, I think where the fear in my mind comes in is we just experienced a summer where there was lawlessness in the streets, where there was violence in the streets, where where law enforcement openly said, you know, we're not able to control this street or we're not able to control this situation. You know, you're kind of on your own. And, and I think that kind of lawlessness is appalling. Uh, and we, we saw people... You know, their cars, the windows bashed out of their cars, in some cases drug out of their cars. And, you know, so, and those are the kind of people that my heart goes out to because that would be a terrifying situation. And this duty to retreat doesn't just apply to firearms. You know, that, that person in the vehicle who is surrounded by a mob of people and they're bashing the windows out of their car and so they... You know, they give the gas to get out of the situation, and somebody gets bumped or knocked down. The next thing you know, there's a discussion about whether they should be charged. Well, gosh, I mean, at what point are we going to enforce the law? And, you know, I think this past summer really gave fuel to the idea that it's absurd that I'm expected to analyze the situation enough to figure out if I can run or hide uh, when, when split seconds when my life is in danger are going by. And I think that's the real root cause of this bill um, and why I think the legislature agreed it was necessary. Talking with Rob Sexton, Legislative Affairs Director of Buckeye Firearms Association, there's a, also a part of this new law that protects uh, churches and nonprofit organizations, right? Yes. In fact, that what you're talking about is the original language that was in the bill before the repeal of duty to retreat was inserted. So in current law, that immunity exists for businesses. You know, if somebody commits an act of, uh, of violence that's unconnected to my business on my premises, you know, there's immunity for me being sued by people who are involved in the shooting for somehow being responsible for it. But the law didn't apply that same immunity to nonprofits, including churches, uh, for example. So uh, Senate Bill 175 in its original form just simply clarified that that immunity exists for nonprofits as well as for nonprofit or uh, uh, for-profit businesses. The mayor of uh, Dayton, Nan Whaley, uh, spoke out against this signing by the governor and, and expressed disappointment in him because 
he had come to Dayton after the mass shooting and talked about, you know, the, the crowd was chanting, do something, and he, he pledged to do something. He's still trying to do something, but Whaley saw this as kind of going in the wrong direction for him. And he still, during his coronavirus updates, talks about wanting st- uh, stronger background checks, that type of thing. What is your take on Governor DeWine? Well, I, I, you know, my take is that he kept his promise. You know, when he was running for governor, he committed in writing, he committed publicly, he committed in private conversations that if the, the repeal of duty to retreat was put on his desk, he would sign it. Uh, his running mate, of course, a, a, you know, a Daytonian, he made the same commitment. Uh, and so we were counting on him to keep that promise, and, and he did. So we're very happy that he did. As far as Mayor Whaley goes, you know, Dayton's actually my hometown. And, uh, I, you know, I live in Columbus area now but uh, for many years, but I grew up in Dayton, and, you know, there was a time when people just wouldn't even go downtown. It was just not a safe place to go. And so over the last 20 years, there's been a lot of investment into downtown, including their minor league ballpark, which is really, really nice. But over this summer, you know, with the type of violence that we saw in the cities, including Dayton, you know, you'd have to ask yourself why anybody would want to go down there as long as they don't have a handle on things. And so my thought to Mayor Whaley is, why are, you know, why is it that your solution is to target law-abiding gun owners when what, you, what needs to happen is you need to get control of your own streets? Because people need to feel safe. And, and I think that's, that is the biggest challenge facing her for Dayton uh, or us here in Columbus talking with Rob Sexton. He's the Legislative Affairs Director of the Buckeye Firearms Association. The ongoing uh, process of people who, who want to have a concealed carry permit to get, you know, their safety courses and certification, has all that been disrupted by the pandemic? Uh, yes, uh, we, were, we were fortunate to, uh, you know, to secure some extensions and renewals and that sort of thing, but it, it absolutely was affected. Um, you had sort of a double hit. First, the, the pandemic itself dramatically slowed down the abilities of many county sheriffs to process permits and renewals and the like. And then you had, uh, with the violence in the streets, you had a surge in people wanting to take the courses. So you had a, a, an uptick in just people interested in doing it. And together that caused a, a fairly big backlog uh, that we've worked to address in several ways. The legislature extended uh, your renewal period so that you know people who uh, uh, who currently have licenses don't wind up with an expired license, even though they can't get an appointment. Uh, we also uh, now allow people to go to any county to get their license renewed. It used to be just your own home county and the ones that are right next door, and so that would alleviate some of the backlog. Um, but, um, you know, I think the process is digging its way out, but it, it was definitely challenged there, you know, around mid-year. If uh, folks want information about concealed carry or, you know, how to get certified and uh, just what your association's up to, how do they find out? Well, I think probably the quickest place is to just, uh, you know, look up Buckeye Firearms Association on the Internet. Uh, and uh, our website is a comprehensive uh, place to go, not just to look at laws, but also for various training courses and that sort of thing. And, it, and we can be found at www.buckeyefirearms.org. Okay, in, interesting topic. It's uh, certainly never going to run out of different avenues to uh, inspect, you know. 
Nope, I don't think we will, but I, I appreciate the chance to talk with you, and uh, you know, let me know if you'd ever like to talk again. We're available. Great. Thanks, Rob. Sure appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective. <laughs>